Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Security scare, China passes its contentious Hong Kong security law. Details, though, are scarce. Border ban, the EU prepares to open up, but not to Americans. And crunching COVID, how Japan is using a supercomputer to fight the virus. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. As always, great to be with you. And it's a case of two moves forward, one move back, at least as far as the reopenings of global economies goes. Let me walk you through what we're seeing right now. Here in the United States, at least 16 U.S. states have paused or rolled back their reopening measures. Parts of the Australian city of Melbourne have introduced some lockdown measures there after the largest spike in two months. And the UK's first local lockdown has been tightened in Leicestershire. Meanwhile, in Africa and Nigeria, many have also extended some lockdown measures there too. It's too early to gauge the extent of the economic impact this will have. Surely it will extend the time to recovery, though, and that will be, I think, the message that we get from Fed Chair Jerome Powell when he and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin speak to Congress late today. The sheer scale of the uncertainty, the problem here, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis says just 53 percent of Americans are able to work and actually have a job right now, an alarming number, especially with extended unemployment benefits set to run out one month from now. Time, I think, to act and extend for Congress. U.S. futures are taking a pause after a 2% Dow rally yesterday. The second quarter performance for the Dow is strong, though, at 14% gain, 16% if you're looking at the S&P 500. But little of that gain happened in this current month. The S&P barely in positive territory on the month. Though contrast that with Asia, where the finish was strong, as new data shows China's manufacturing and services sectors back in growth mode this month, beating expectations. And Hong Kong, meanwhile, rising a half a percent, despite China formally passing, as I mentioned, its sweeping national security law for the city. And that is where we're beginning the drivers today. China's move, a response to months of protests against Beijing's interference in the city. Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, says the new law comes into effect today. Pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong said on Twitter it marks the end of the Hong Kong that the world knew before. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with more. Ivan, great to have you with us. However expected this move by uh, Beijing to enact this national security law, as you can see there, it's devastating for some of these protesters. And we don't really know what this law contains yet. We don't. And, and I think you're underlining one of the real kind of contradictions here, that the highest ranked official here in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, announced that this law would go in effect later today. It's already 9 p.m. here in Hong Kong and nobody in the city knows what's actually in the law. Add to how surreal this is, is that Carrie Lam and her administration have for weeks been celebrating this law, saying it's going to be wonderful for this former British colony, while 
neither knowing what's going to be in it or nor being included in the drafting of the law, which was done in Beijing by the National People's Congress behind closed doors. The Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, reportedly signed it into effect today. It has had a, a chilling impact already. As you mentioned, Joshua Wong, one uh, pro-democracy activist here, uh, resigning from his party, his party Demosisto, then declaring that they were basically shutting their doors. Several other Hong Kong pro-democracy parties also say they are shutting down their Hong Kong offices because the authorities who are celebrating this law, before, again, we know the contents of it, what they have told us is that it will criminalize uh, crimes such as sedition, subversion, terrorism, collusion with foreign powers. But as we've seen in authoritarian countries, like mainland China, the definition of those crimes and who falls under those crimes is very opaque and can be used to silence anybody who angers the state. And that is really the concern right now here in Hong Kong. Add to the fact that tomorrow is the 23rd anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British rule to mainland Chinese rule. Uh, uh, the biggest pro-democracy protest of the year has been banned for the first time in decades here in Hong Kong tomorrow. Some activists say they will still march, but if this law goes into effect, will all those people possibly be suddenly accused of committing acts of treason by criticizing possibly the authorities here in Hong Kong or in Beijing? Julia. I think the belief here is and the fear here is, Ivan, to exactly what you're saying, that the one country, two systems is de facto over as a result of this, because whatever the law says, the powers here are so vast and, and reaching that it's effectively the end of, of autonomy. Is that what people are saying to you? Because that has huge business implications. We've had businesses like HSBC, like Standard Chartered, saying, look, we're okay with this law and they've come under fierce criticism for seemingly siding with China over this. Well, China has exerted some real muscle over corporations based here in Hong Kong, uh, effectively forcing the firing of the CEO of Cathay Pacific last year amid the months of increasingly violent anti-government protests that roiled the city that are basically being used as justification for ramming through this new legislation and for completely bypassing Hong Kong's own elected legislative body, the Legislative Council. Its building is just a couple of hundred meters from where I'm standing right now. Um, it's not just pro-democracy activists that have, have criticized this here in Hong Kong. It's also foreign governments uh, like Britain, which is a co-signatory to an international treaty with China, which was supposed to maintain semi-autonomy for Hong Kong until the year 2047. Also, Japan, uh, the G7 states, the U.S., which has announced that it will impose sanctions on current and former Chinese officials it accuses of eroding Hong Kong's autonomy. Also, the U.S. has been threatening to remove favored trading status with Hong Kong, uh, a separate status that it applies to the, US, uh, to the rest of mainland China. Uh, and China has vowed kind of tit-for-tat uh, retaliatory measures against U.S. citizens here while not clarifying who they might be. So all of this is part of what feels like an historic moment of change taking place and of a kind of freewheeling, uh, politically tolerant Hong Kong uh, potentially changing irreversibly uh, as of 
I guess, whatever hour this new law comes into effect. I will add that the Hong Kong authorities insist that this new law, which they have not read, uh, read will only affect a tiny minority of suspected criminals. But how do you define that minority? Julia. Precisely. And we need those details. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for bringing us all the details there. All right, let's move on. The EU is opening up its external borders for some. We're awaiting a list of countries whose tourists will be allowed to travel to the EU from July. And we're also expecting some notable emissions. Fred Pleitgen is in Brussels for us. Fred, we're awaiting that decision. We've actually been waiting that decision some hours and they obviously have to get all the EU leaders to decide what their nation's going to do. Mm -hmm. There can be exceptions, but when you look at the health mandate here and the challenges, the United States here looks like it will be excluded. Yeah, it's pretty sure that the U.S. is going to be excluded. And Julia, you're absolutely right. It is one of those days in Brussels where things are running only about three hours behind schedule. And you're absolutely right. The reason for that is that not all the member states have signed off uh, on that list uh, that they are obviously going to have to before that list is going to be published. So we are still waiting for that to happen. We're hoping that it'll happen fairly soon. And when it does happen, there's really several interesting points about what that list is going to ta- uh, contain. Most likely, China is going to be on the list of uh, uh, countries whose uh, citizens are going to be allowed to travel back to the European Union, but only if there's reciprocity of China also allowing Europeans back in. And if you look at the list very closely, uh, one of the interesting things is that it's not necessarily wealthy countries who are on that, but countries who have simply been very, very effective at beating back the pandemic, including Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Rwanda, for instance, all of whom, at least uh, uh, judging by what the EU is saying, have done a better job than the United States of beating back this pandemic. And the European officials have always said that all this is purely medical criteria. It's the coronavirus situation in the countries of origin where people want to travel uh, to the European Union. Right now, with those surges going on in the United States, very clearly, U.S. travelers are not going to be able to come back here uh, to the European Union, at, at least at this point in time, on July 1st, tomorrow, obviously, when this new list is set to take effect. And again, we're waiting for it uh, to come down, hopefully, any moment so we can then confirm the 15 countries that are going to be on that list, Julia. Yes, a further incentive to get the uh, health, health crisis uh, more under control. Fred Plankin in Brussels, thank you so much for that. Now, Ford, Puma and Pfizer are some of the latest big brands to boycott Facebook's advertising platform over its hate speech policies or lack of them. While the social media platform Twitch is suspending the Trump campaign account. It's a video streaming platform, of course. And Reddit has banned a pro-Trump forum called The Underscore Donald. Richard Quest joins me now. Great to have you with us, Richard. Some of the newer platforms here taking a bolder stance than some of the older ones. Arguably, they have less to lose in terms of financial interest, perhaps, as well, and advertising eyeballs. What do we think, Richard? Does any of this make a difference? Well, the Twitch one is actually banning or suspended an official Donald Trump campaign um, streaming service. So that is a sea change in a sense. This isn't tangential. This is actually banning something that's got a direct line to the president. You can see the causation through the president. And one more thing, Julia, one of the videos 
that they the reasons that they banned was because of that video of the president coming down the escalator at the start of his campaign uh, several years ago. That was the one where he gave that speech about Mexican druggists and rapists coming to the United States. They are classifying that as hate speech, and therefore that's one of the reasons why they're banning it. Now, whether they're right or not on hate speech, that particular speech can can arguably have gone into the annals of American political history because it was the kickoff point. I remember him making it dramatic, extraordinary, and that's now being said as one of the reasons of hate speech. So you see here, Julia, how the difficulties lie for these different social media sites. Yeah, and actually, Twitch is an interesting one because they said they would start issuing permanent bans. They said this last week for for um, content like this, although I believe this is a temporary ban as far as the, tr- the Trump campaign is concerned. But, you know, when you add up the big brands and we look at sp- Facebook specifically, because these are the ones that I think are facing most heat um, at this moment, the biggest advertisers, the 100 biggest brands are just 6%, 6% of their advertising right. revenue. They have 8 million advertising spenders here. I just don't see beyond the political pressure that we're seeing here. And I mean, the the pressure to to make these suspensions, whether Mark Zuckerberg, who has all control here, decides to do anything material about it. But if you look at what the actual campaign, Stop Hate Profit campaign wants, you see the things that they haven't got are not the apologies, they're not the, the various will introduce new policies on monitoring. No, they want to get into the guts of Facebook. They want representation at the C-suite. They want new monitors. They want consumers to be able to get direct contact with the monitors. They are looking at a wholesale shift in the way that Facebook would handle this from a practical. And what I found impressive about the campaign is that they haven't gone for, we want nice sounding or well-meaning phrases and policies. They actually want root and branch change within the company that would affect it. And that's why Facebook won't budge. That's why Facebook is basically said, as I said yesterday, Facebook is basically saying, we know what you want But we also are warning you, boycotts and bans will not budge us. (laughs) So the answer is no, you don't think anything uh, anything necessarily will change as far as Mark Zuckerberg is concerned? Oh, I think not for Facebook. Not not for Facebook, Julia. Not for Facebook. But I think... We're heading dangerously to the Voltaire quote, which I know is is never far from your reading. You know, I disagree violently with what you say and believe, but I'll fight for the death for your right to say it. We're getting very close to at what point you can say, look, I hate what you're saying, but actually you do have a right to say it. And that's where Facebook is closer to the line then they have to accept being regulated by the FCC like everybody else, like all of us. It's not fair to put all the content out there and not be regulated the same way as someone like us who would have to deal with it. But my other point, very quickly, and then I'll have to move on because I'm being shouted at, is advertising, pulling advertising money in an economic recession temporarily when this is the first thing that you would be pulling anyway. I want some of these guys to give this money to charity or to the appropriate charities. I don't know what they're doing with the money that they're suspending giving to a Facebook here for advertising. Guys, let us know what you're doing with the money. Some, Some have. 
Have they? Okay, good. Some have, some won't. We'll reconvene so we'll on this. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much. <laughs> Richard Quest there. All right, naughty. India has banned TikTok and dozens more popular mobile apps from Chinese firms. It's part of the fallout from the growing hostility between the two nations uh, since deadly border clashes earlier this month. Shri's fam has more. Huge growth opportunity for TikTok here in India. Millions of users, revenue opportunity here too. This is painful. This is painful for TikTok. TikTok has a lot to lose in India. The country is TikTok's top market for downloads, 660 million downloads to date in India. An analyst telling me that the company stands to lose up to 150 million downloads because of this ban, if it's enacted and if it uh, lasts through the rest of the year. Let's go through a couple more numbers here because they are staggering. Of course, when you're whenever you're talking about a country as large as India. So what is the big loss that could happen to TikTok is in, in India is, of course, what you were talking about with Richard there. These social media platforms pull in a lot of money from advertising revenue. And an analyst telling me that this year, ByteDance had forecast that they were going to bring in $1 billion in advertising revenue in India. Uh, and that is, uh, it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what they bring in around the world, about $20 billion in 2019. But it's a fast growing market, the digital advertising market in, in India projected to grow 26% this year. And all of this, of course, is now in jeopardy for TikTok and for its parent company, ByteDance. Their India business is in jeopardy. Uh, a TikTok spokesperson did not comment for this story for us today, but they said earlier that they are, quote, committed to working with the government to demonstrate our dedication to user security and our commitment to the country overall. But it is not clear how this ban will be enacted, when it will be en enacted, and how long it could possibly last. But for now, it looks like TikTok and a lot of other Chinese firms and Chinese apps are locked out of this massive market. And the Indian government shows no sign of letting them back in anytime soon. Sharice hmm. Pham, great to have you with us and a great insight and a work on that. All right, coming up on the first move, the CEO of a company providing the plumbing for payments online. The cash is flowing thanks to orders from home. And later in the show, we meet the man behind the world's fastest calculator. It's a supercomputer which is going after the coronavirus. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures are softer on the final day of the second quarter. Reopening challenges once again front and center. AMC has announced that it will delay opening U.S. movie theaters until the end of July. Here in New York, even more conservative, Broadway officials say curtains won't rise again until January at the earliest. Boeing shares, meanwhile, set to pull back a little after a blistering 14 percent rally on Monday. Shares spiked as the firm began test flights of the revamped 737 MAX. And bank shares are mostly lower pre-market today, too. Every major U.S. bank, excluding Wells Fargo, said they did well enough in last week's stress test results to maintain their current dividend payouts. JP Morgan, though, said it could cut its dividend if economic conditions deteriorate. They've warned in the past about that, too. Now, the United States accounts for around a quarter 
of coronavirus cases worldwide. At least 16 states have halted their reopening plans as the number of new infections surge. And the situation is not improving. Only two states now reporting a decline in fresh cases over the past week. Randy Kay has more. More South Florida beaches will be closed this 4th of July as local leaders watch coronavirus cases surge across the Sunshine State. We decided to close our beaches this weekend, mainly because uh, holiday weekends especially are known for attracting large numbers of people. The Florida Department of Health reporting over 5,000 new infections Monday. Still, Governor Ron DeSantis has not made wearing masks mandatory statewide. We've left it to the locals to to make decisions about whether they want to use coercive measures or impose any type of of criminal penalties. You know, we're not going to do that statewide. This as Jacksonville joins the list of cities now requiring them in indoor spaces where social distancing is not possible, ahead of hosting the Republican National Convention this August. Beaches in Los Angeles will also be closed this holiday weekend. Health officials citing nearly 3,000 new cases, the highest one-day total ever reported in L.A. County. This year, we have to think about saving lives. California is one of at least 16 states modifying or pausing their reopening plans. And now, in Arizona, bars, gyms, movie theaters, and water parks will close for the next 30 days. Gatherings over 50 people are also prohibited. Still, Governor Doug Ducey stopping short of issuing a statewide facial covering requirement. Our expectation is that next week, our numbers will be worse. It will take several weeks for the mitigations that we have put in place and are putting in place to take effect, but they will take effect. New York and New Jersey's governors are looking to stop spikes from happening in their states yet again. In New York City, Broadway will remain dark through the end of the year. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says he's considering slowing the city's reopening citing some troubling signs of people not following social distancing. Meanwhile, indoor dining in New Jersey is postponed indefinitely. This isn't a forever and for always. We've gone through hell in New Jersey. We've lost over 13,000 people. Uh, We're trying to do everything we can to not go through hell again. This morning, one CDC expert warning it may already be too late to control the spread of the disease across the United States. I think there was a lot of wishful thinking around the country that, hey, summer, everything's going to be fine. We're over this. And we are not even beginning to be over this. We have way too much virus across the country. Randy Kay reporting there. And the climbing cases means many businesses across the nation have been forced to shut down for a second time. Just as access to emergency aid in the form of small business loans, the so-called Paycheck Protection Program, expires. Phil Mattingly reports. Shutting doors is the very definition of losing your livelihood for um, a lot of small businesses. What happens when hundreds of billions of federal dollars simply isn't enough? And we're a brewery. We sell stuff $6 at a time. So it's not like we're, you know, Apple selling, you know, a a, a computer at 2000 a pop. We're we're not that business. It's the wrenching question small business owners like Jeff and Rich Fierro of Acervita Beer Company are grappling with as the cornerstone of the Small Business Federal Lifeline, the Paycheck Protection Program, 
comes to an end today. It's such a fluid situation that no one really knows when it's going to start to kind of die down. And then we do t start to die down and then it starts to peak right back up. The Fierros run the first female Latino-owned brewery in Colorado. And between their inventive, socially conscious beers... I would love to see more uh, of a Latin influence, you know, in yeah. the craft beer industry. We are no strangers to partying. We are no yeah. strangers yeah. to drinking. We're going to lift some things. I'm going to and their equally ingenious Facebook content, they quickly made a name for themselves in Colorado Springs. Then the pandemic hit in March. We're a family business. And it changed everything. You know, we're both owners. I'm the head brewer. My husband's there 90% of the time. My daughter works front of the house as well. Um, so it's, it's scary. They received a PPP loan and it helped but it could only go so far. It didn't solve the problems. What it did was sustain us for a few more months. The program is credited by government officials for saving millions of jobs, with more than 4.8 small business owners tapping into the funds for more than $519 billion in loans. But the lawmakers who created the program acknowledge the scale of the pandemic-driven downturn simply wasn't expected. And even with the federal assistance, the hit has been devastating. Between February and May, companies with fewer than 500 employees lost 11.6 million jobs, or 18.4% of their workforce. The structure of the program, between the period the money needed to be used to the inability to ask for a second loan, has left shuttered restaurants in particularly dire straits. We drive to work with that, that notion of let's be positive today, let's do it, but we are slowly seeing you know front awnings come down. And the problems the program encountered from a rocky rollout and constantly shifting rules to strict limits on how funds could be used chilled its effectiveness in recent weeks. In fact, the program will shut down on Tuesday with more than 134 billion funds untapped. Lawmakers have committed to redeploying those unused funds soon in the next round of stimulus, but soon may not be enough for some small businesses. There's a lot of hard work being done by folks that are not asking for handouts, that are not running around asking for anybody to solve their problems. What we're looking for is the opportunity to continue to fight to get to where we want to be. Phil Mattingly reporting there. All right, so we're back after this with the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are open for trading this Tuesday, as I mentioned earlier, the final trading day of the month and quarter. And it looks like Wall Street will end it not with a bang, but with hmm, a little bit of a whimper. We're seeing a lower start to the trading day as investors await the testimony of Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Fed Chair Jay Powell on Capitol Hill. Powell, in his opening statement, says that the path forward for the economy remains, quote, extraordinarily uncertain. Expect to hear fresh pleas for increased stimulus, though carefully, of course, not crossing any lines there on his mandate. Morgan Stanley now says the only way the U.S. sees a V-shaped recovery is with more emergency spending. We've long said it. Let's get to our top story now. China has passed a sweeping national security law for Hong Kong, despite strong criticism from the United States and other nations. In Britain, which handed Hong Kong back to China in 1997, the government says it's waiting to see the detail of the law. 
We are obviously deeply concerned about the decision to pass the, uh, the national security law in, uh, in Beijing as it affects uh, Hong Kong. Uh, we will be looking at the uh, law very carefully. We will want to scrutinize it properly uh, to understand uh, whether it's in conflict with the, uh, the joint declaration between the UK and, and China. And you know, we'll be setting out our response in, in due course. You'll have heard what I've already said, Pippa, about our duty to, to the BNOs in, uh, in Hong Kong. David Culver, burning the midnight oil for us once again. David, great to have you with us. Only China and the Beijing authorities actually know the content of this law at this moment, which is one thing, but the timing here also feels strategic with the international community busy dealing with their own situations with the COVID outbreak. No question, Julia. Yeah, I mean, it's the distraction that's going on with many of the other countries in the world that would naturally be opposing this in perhaps a more vocal and active way. But as of now, China seems to be moving forward with it amidst this coronavirus distraction for the rest of the world. I mean, the the reality here is there is so much unknown and it's this fear and the vagueness of it that is continuing to spread. So we don't have the specifics of what exactly it'll mean. But what China has laid out and state media has put it out there that President Xi Jinping himself has already signed this is that this will ban secession, subversion, terrorism and collusion with foreign forces. Now, when they mention foreign forces, no question, a lot of that is focused in on the United States. And and we saw over the past year, China and Beijing in particular was quite uh, frustrated and even embarrassed at times with how things were going within Hong Kong with the protests that played out starting just about a year ago at this time. And now they are trying to exert their not only control, but also their influence moving forward and push out any external influence. So what we do expect over the next few hours or so, I I say 12 hours from now, even we should have some more information. I'll even be attending a press conference here in Beijing that'll give us a bit more of an understanding as to how this may play out in effect. But the reality is it's already having a lot of uneasiness spread across Hong Kong and the territory there just over the border. And no doubt that'll continue as uh, more details emerge here. But right now, it seems that everyone's really understanding that this will be a significant change for Hong Kong as we know it. Absolutely. And only serving to ratchet up the tension between China and the rest of the world at the same time. David Culver, thank you so much for joining us on that. All right, the coronavirus pandemic is changing our shopping habits. It did it overnight. And with a surge in digital payments, the sector is ripe for both growth and disruption. One contender is card issuing and payment processing platform Marketa. Its technology allows clients to provide card services instantly by connecting firms to big payment networks like Visa without needing them to develop their own infrastructure. As the pandemic hit, the company was able to react incredibly quickly. March and April, in fact, were the busiest for the firm in history. Now, alongside Visa, Marquette is also backed by Goldman Sachs and counts the likes of DoorDash, Uber and Square among its clients. Jason Gardner is founder and CEO of Marquette, and he joins us now. Jason, fantastic to have you with us. You've got a lot going on. In your own words, just explain what, what the company does. Well, Julia, thank you for having me. This is certainly uh, unprecedented time. So yes. uh, Marketa provides infrastructure, a platform to companies that want to build Visa and MasterCard card products. They can be physical plastic cards. They can be tokenized cards that into Apple Pay and Google Pay. 
uh, or they can be virtual cars. And what they do is they basically are both uh, consumer or commercial use cases uh, so that they can build these cars to uh, solve specific uh, uh, constituency issues that they're looking to, uh, to bring to market. What you've got is actually quite revolutionary when we're talking about things like Instacart or, or DoorDash, when you've got a delivery person going to a store to collect something for someone else. And the way that they can use your version of the card to make that payment, just explain how this, this part of, of the business works. Yeah, so think about you have 500,000 drivers, whether it's DoorDash or Instacart or Postmates or Uber Eats or Grubhub, you have a number of customers out there that uh, when these drivers go to pick up food, you got to make sure whether it's a restaurant or a grocery store, they're picking up the right order at the right time for the right consumers. So our infrastructure uh, provides uh, uh, products to our customers so that when the uh, driver is going to pick up the order and that card is swiped or a phone is tapped, uh, it allows our customers to do an order match uh, in real time to make sure that the, the right order is being picked up at the right time. Uh, for the right amount, and that allows them to uh, not only reduce fraud down to almost zero, uh, it allows them to scale infinitely, whether it's uh, here in the U.S., Canada, Europe, or Asia, where we operate. And I'm assuming that has a critical um, piece of solving the theft puzzle as well and the challenge that you have, particularly in this part of the business. Yeah, I mean, uh, fraud is a, uh, a normal part of uh, the card uh, ecosystem, and we see that on a pretty regular basis. Um, what I can say is over the 11 years we've been operating, we've seen uh, almost every facet of, uh, of fraud, and we are able to, to essentially stop it in its tracks. Um, our infrastructure is, is, uh, is pretty unique uh, because it allows our customers to go build the products that are specific to, a, uh, to an issue, whether it's uh, on-demand delivery, disbursements, uh, e-commerce, uh, buy now, pay later for companies like Affirm, Afterpay, or Klarna. Uh, and it allows them to uh, not only provide this, uh, what we see as really essential infrastructure today, but it also allows them to uh, affect the transactions or approve those transactions, which, uh, in your words, uh, really reduces uh, fraud down to near zero. I'm, an, I'm assuming that the way that you make money is you just take a cut, a small piece of the transaction size. So you just, on each transaction that goes through, you take your cut. And therefore, as a result of COVID, where we've seen massive increases in transaction volume, you've done well financially. Yeah, the company has done very well. The last few months, uh, we've seen record volumes across the platform. Uh, and, and the core reason, as you, as you point to, is we're providing essential infrastructure for these companies that uh, frankly, deal with with food delivery. Now, food delivery has, uh, in the time of COVID, has become this truly essential services, uh, including my 83-year-old mother-in-law who never heard of Instacart, but gets her groceries uh, delivered on a fairly regular basis now. So um, we as a company uh, are, are really focused on providing those services. We do get a cut of what is called interchange. Uh, it's what the merchant pays to accept uh, uh, payment cards. And that's what allows us to grow. We've seen uh, a lot of unique things going on. We've seen uh, uh, New England, for instance, uh, six times, uh, you know, the, the typical ordering we see in on-demand delivery. Uh, we've seen a 10x increase uh, in mobile phone payments. So, you know, paying with Apple Pay or Google Pay at the point of sale. We're seeing where essentially cash has become 
uh, a carrier of COVID or is considered dirty. And we've seen uh, really a number of really interesting facts happen uh, just in the last three and a half months alone. Do you think we can sustain this going forward? Because to your point, there's been a, a fear associated with physical cash over this period. And really, until we get a vaccine or we get through this somehow, that will remain. Do you think beyond that, demand for your products and the growth that we've seen will be sustained? What's your sense of what the future looks like? Well, the future is is now. I mean, we've seen uh, even digital first technologies, which as a company we believe would be three or four years away, are happening right now. Uh, we're seeing where people are beginning to pay with their phones. They're they're not, you know, tapping. They're they're not inserting their cards or swiping their cards. They're actually tapping them uh, on the machines because this obviously is concerned about COVID. Now we've seen where um, certainly here in the U.S. where we see a, a you know a, a sort of a reverse. Uh, in regards to opening up the economy. So we're definitely going to see this for, for some time. Um, you know, what's going to happen uh, late in the year or next year around cash or are people still going to be going to ATMs to take out cash? Uh, will they begin even more paying with their phone? Uh, I will bet on it. Uh, I think we're going to see uh, a real shift in human behavior around how we pay for things. Uh, we'll definitely see an increase in e-commerce, e more than we've already seen today. Uh, we'll see an even more significant increase in paying at the point of sale with uh, Apple Pay and Google Pay and other you know, mobile-first types of technologies. Uh, it's, it's been a pretty significant uh, shift in human behavior in a relatively short period of time. And, yes. and it's global. It's, uh, it's a social engineering exper experiment that we've never experienced in our lifetimes. And particularly for, I say, the United States, it's actually forcing a catch-up with places in Southeast Asia, China, where you go. And this is this is perfectly normal and it, we're, uh, we're years and years behind. Jason, come back and talk to us because there's so much more to discuss. That was just a taster of what you guys do. And um, we will continue the conversation. Jason Gardner, CEO of Marketa there. Thank you. All right. After the break. Big computers have come a long way since the gleaming rooms filled with giant grey boxes. They're actually using giant black boxes now. I'm joking, of course. Japan is celebrating this impressive-looking beast. It's called Fugaku. And right now, it's waging war on coronavirus. Stay with us. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Japan is famous for staggering technological innovations, and now it's the home of the world's fastest supercomputer. The Fugaku came top of the list in four performance benchmarks. The top 500 list put it ahead of rivals in both the United States and China. And this machine is crazy fast. In the top 500 test, it clocked up a score of 415 petaflops. Indiana University says to keep up with one of those computers, you need to perform one calculation every second for nearly 32 million years. Now multiply that by 415, and that's one calculation every second for a mere 13.2 billion years. Wowzers. And guess what? You can run Word on it too. <laughs> right now, that processing power is being used in the fight against coronavirus. Professor Satoshi Matsuka is director at the Riken Center for Computational Science, and he joins us now. Professor, fantastic to have you on the show. Congratulations on this supercomputer. That is impressively fast. Thank you very much. And um, of course, we're very proud of our achievement. We have been working on this machine for the past 10 years wow. to become Japan's flagship supercomputer. So we're very proud. 
Talk to me about the fight against COVID-19 and the work that you're doing on the computer simulations for things like trains and the spread of droplets. Can you explain what you're doing and what you're finding? Well, Fugaku was originally slated to be operational in early 21. But because of this coronavirus situation, we deployed it a year early because the machine had always been in place and going on there for the development, but it was good enough to um, be deployed for various uh, activities regarding uh, mitigating coronavirus. And one branch of activities is basically to try to mitigate the spread of the virus by trying to see when you know people cough, when they talk or sing or whatnot, um, or if they wear masks or uh, or face guards, what would the spread of the virus be under different kinds of, kinds of environments? And we're finding various uh, uh, various um, uh, innovative results with respect to, for example, high, uh, how high the partitions between, let's say, office space has to be, which was not uh, precedented, uh, recorded before in more empirical-based experiments. Also, of course, we're trying to develop um, uh, drugs and vaccines. For example, um, one of the research groups is testing over 2,000 uh, potential Canada compounds, you know, drugs that are already approved but otherwise have not been applied to uh, uh, coronavirus, but uh, are promising. And we're doing various microscopic tests at the molecular level, molecule level to see if they work. You also downloaded the contract tracing app that Japan is using onto your smartphone, and you ran simulations on that too to assess what the computer believed is the proportion of the country that needs to be using that tracing app in order to make it most effective. It's pretty high. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, of course, the tracing app uh, has just been deployed. And um, of course, it's, if, you know, if it's, if it's um, available, um, to, you know, of course, it's downloadable, available to everyone from free. And of course, that's also the case for most countries. But what's the percentage of population uh, does it need to be spread to in order to be effective? And we run, uh, we run again on Fugaku. We run simulations uh, to see, you know, um, a very detailed simulation as to uh, these uh, contact situations and how people might get contagious and so forth. And uh, we're finding that the uh, a significantly high percentage of people need to actually have, uh, have this application for it to be effective. So um, these kinds of educational activities are very important again for mitigation, and that's some of our findings. Yeah, it's very clever. 60%, I believe, according to uh, your simulations, you'd 60% of people um, using this contact tracing app. The other thing that I thought about was, given Japan's geographical location, seismic activity, earthquakes, tsunamis, modeling those and perhaps escape routes, is that something else that this supercomputer perhaps could number crunch and process and provide value for the nation on? Yes, you know, Japan is... Uh, you know, one of the most, you know, one of the advanced countries in the world, but uh, it is probably the most disastrous in terms of all the natural disasters we get. We got, you know, we get the whole works, the earthquakes and tsunamis and typhoons, you name it, as you mentioned. So disaster mitigation is very serious, um, especially serious for us, and the supercomputers play a very important role. And if it's not just a you know, single phenomena nowadays, nowadays we're simulating, it's the phenomena, combined phenomena, like, for example, when you have an earthquake, you get tsunami and get water in the cities. Um, but when you get the water in cities, uh, people try to evacuate, but the buildings are destroyed because of the earthquakes. 
which will block these uh, passageways for evacuation. So um, then what's the mitigation measure to allow people to escape? So these are very complex, complicated simulations requiring both you know, traditional simulations and AI, but our new supercomputer for Raku uh, excels at both. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it'll be utilized to uh, try to keep people's you know, uh, lives safe and also protect our uh, economy and livelihood. Yeah, and it's the practical applications of this beyond the sheer scale of it. We're showing some pictures here. Just very quickly, how much is this computer worth, Professor? Um, well, the whole project is over uh, $1 billion US, uh, plus the electricity bill we have to pay every year, which, uh, which actually increases the costs even more. Um, but, you know, uh, when you think of the uh, overall effect uh, of you know, how much lives we save, or, uh, or you know, what's the, the impact on the economy, the positive impact on the economy, as well as you know, propelling IT, because you know what we've done, what we've done is to really develop a CPU that's like yes. uh, that's forefront of all the other CPUs in the industry, and that's why we have the number one machine. Yes. When you combine all those effects, uh, we believe um, it's uh, it's well worth the cost. Yes. One, you can't put a price on life and $1 billion relative to the savings and the knowledge it's providing is um, incredible. Professor, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Professor thank you very much. Yeah, my uh, director at the Recon Center for Computational Science. And thank you for staying up so late, by the way, as well. I know it's late there. No <laughs> You're watching you. CNN. More to come. Stay with us. News just into CNN. The EU travel list we mentioned earlier in the show has finally been confirmed. No surprises. Starting from Wednesday, tourists from 15 countries, including China, Australia, New Zealand and Japan, will be allowed to travel to the European Union. Those countries are deemed to have the coronavirus pandemic under control. The United States is notably absent. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. And I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good day. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.